0: You know, we, we picked that one song, I knew it wasn't very familiar to a lot of people, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, because I love that idea, the king there in his beauty. The king in his beauty. Uh, as Americans, and I know not all of you are Americans, but most of you are, we're not really accustomed to thinking of kings in a positive way. I mean, part of what it means to be American is that we rebelled against the king and decided that we wanted to be independent. And we have, you know, a declaration of independence that in many ways uh, speaks into our national identity. That we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, all those kind of things. So I'm not going to comment on the Christian, uh, you know, whether that's a very Christian idea or not. But I am going to say this. It's It's a pretty profound thing that the Bible speaks over and over again about the fact that our hearts were made for a king. And that's what we're going to be studying this semester. We're going to be looking at the life of David in the Old Testament. Now, I like to go through Old Testament books at Belmont because so many of you take Old Testament classes, right? And uh, I think it's important that you understand how the Old Testament speaks to Christ and to Christianity, Uh, Unfortunately, so often people kind of have this this, uh, sort of their practical use of the Bible, even if they've been raised in church, uh, is such that the Old Testament, they might have read a little bit in the Psalms and maybe they've, you know, poked around a little bit here or there. Um, You might read some Isaiah passages when it comes to be Christmas time, you know, but for the most part, we don't know a lot about the Old Testament. If we do know much about it, there are stories that maybe we learned in Sunday school or from little children's books. And unfortunately, most of them really miss the point. Of the various stories. And then you can come to Belmont and you can take Old Testament class, and we'll see if you get the point of the stories from that. I'll, I guess the verdict is out on that. Depends on who you have for professor. I'll just tell you that I have coffee with people all the time to talk about those classes and sort of thinking through the kinds of things that you'll be exposed to at a place like Belmont. But what I want us to look at this semester is this deeply important theme that we were made, we were made for a king. And I think the way I'm going to start this is reading you a little introduction from this book. I know it's a children's book, right? Some of the ladies know this book because last year for the freshman girls' Bible study, they went through this book. It's an amazing book showing how all the stories in the Bible ultimately point to Jesus and opening up the Old Testament to you. Because for a lot of people, two-thirds of their Bible, if they've been raised in the church, aren't really very familiar to them. We don't want that. God uh, has said in his word in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Therefore, we want you to understand in RUF what the Bible's all about and how to read it. Sally Lloyd Jones um, put this little book together. It's a remarkable book. Have you ever heard of a guy named Tim Keller? Um, And if you haven't, you should. He's he's a great uh, modern-day preacher up in New York. But basically, she's in his church, listened to a bunch of his sermons they did on the Old Testament passages, and then put together this children's Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the ladies, again, for the freshman Bible study are going to look at this book. But I want to read for you a little bit from the introduction. This is how she puts it here. The story behind the stories... Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible, most of all, is a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far-off country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales. That has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, note this, but all the stories are telling one big story the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. That's what I want us to capture and get a sense of this semester. because for too many people, they read the Bible or they think of Christianity as being about rules, or being about sort of um, sort of people that we're trying to emulate. Maybe uh, you, you know you've been around. ...sort of Christian circles where they sing this, this horrid song called Dare to be a Daniel. Anybody know that one? That, that is so far removed from what the Bible is to be about. The, the stories in the Bible are not little like Christian versions of Aesop's fables... They're not about be like this person, don't be like this person. Because pretty soon you find that it's a pretty complicated deal. Should you be like Noah? I mean, he did believe God, trusted his word, and uh, built this ark. Okay, that was great. But then he exposed his nakedness, got drunk, and, uh, you know, what is that about? Who knows? There are all those kinds of crazy stories in the Bible. There's no character in the Bible until you get to Jesus himself, who could be really called the hero of the stories. God is the hero of the stories. The story of the Bible is the story about how mankind was made, not just to sort of run around and serve God like, like little lemmings. The story is about how God created man and woman to be in a rich relationship with them, to love them, to cherish them, and they, he. But things went terribly wrong, and yet in spite of that, God did not give up. He reaffirmed his commitment. He said, I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the big picture story. And the whole whole tension of the Old Testament in particular is, will God be able to keep that promise? In Genesis chapter 3, he promises in the midst of the brokenness of the fall and sin coming into the world. He says to the serpent, in your curse, he says, you will crush, you will bruise the head, strike the heel of the seed of the woman, and he will crush your head. God is promising, even in the midst of giving this curse to the serpent, he's promising that one day there will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And yet, the whole dramatic tension of the Bible is, will God keep that promise? The true great threats to that promise are the external enemies whether they be the Philistines or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Romans but more profoundly there is the question about whether God's own people will so frustrate him and provoke him that he will finally say enough is enough now where are we at in the story today we're going to look tonight at 1 Samuel chapter 8 if you have a bible you can Look there, and I, and I want to tell you, you know, when I'm talking about seeing the story and all the stories, this isn't just sort of a little trick of interpretation. It's not just my little theory about how you should read the Bible so that you enjoy it more. No, this is what Jesus says is the only appropriate way to read the Bible. There's a couple places where he talks about that. Uh, in Luke chapter 24, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus said, look, I can start with Moses, I can go through all the prophets, and they're talking about me. In John chapter 5, in the midst of an argument with some of the Jewish leaders, he says this, if you believed Moses... If you believe the five books of Moses, what he said, you would believe me because he wrote about me. There you have it. Jesus says, unless you believe that what Moses wrote, he wrote about me, you don't understand what Moses wrote, right? So that, I guess, means we should try to understand it that way. So where are we at in the big picture story as we come here? I'll tell you this. God's people have been enslaved in Egypt. Maybe you know the story, you've heard about the Exodus, maybe you've seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, or you know, the Prince of Egypt, or one of those sorts of things, thinking maybe you know that bit of the story. God's people, Israel, were enslaved in Egypt. God brings them out in a powerful display of his mercy and his grace and his power. He brings them out against overwhelming odds. He opens up the Red Sea, so that they're able to escape Egypt on dry land. And God brings his people into the promised land, the land of Canaan. Now, he doesn't just decide, hey, I'm going to take away this land from these people. The people in the land of Canaan um, had deserved God's judgment for a long time, the Bible says. As a matter of fact, God had promised to Abraham that he was going to keep Israel in bondage in Egypt an extra long time. Until the sin of the Canaanites had reached its full measure. Now we can go talk about coffee about whether that was a genocide or what. I know there's questions that are raised by people when we get into that. But here's what I want you to understand. When we get to 1 Samuel, here's what's happened. God has delivered his people out of Egypt. He's put them into the promised land. They've started to take possession of the promised land. But it hasn't went very well. It hasn't went very well. Joshua dies and then things go really downhill. We have this book called Judges. you guys ever read the book of Judges? The book of Judges is really, in a lot of ways, sort of the absolute low point of the Old Testament and the story. It looks like there's no way that any good thing can come out of this story as it's developing. God keeps raising up Judges, who really in a lot of ways are sort of deliverers and saviors, to rescue his people from their enemies. And then as soon as he does, God's people go back to worshiping idols and other false gods. And then, you know, enemies come back and forth, back and forth. There's this like cycle over and over again. You finally get to one of the most despicable, horrific stories in the entire Bible. And maybe some of you don't even know this story is in there, and this is going to freak you out when I tell you about this story. But you're going to read about it in Old Testament class, so I might as well give you a heads up. In chapter 19 of Judges, things have gotten to such a point that there's a guy who is staying at this house, and a bunch of people surround the house and and want to have their way with him. They tell the owner of the house, send this guy that you're keeping under your roof, send him out so that we can basically gang rape him. And the guy says, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. Take, take uh, my wife and take his concubine. And the fact that the guy is a concubine is like crazy, right? It's not the way God intended it. But that's the situation. What happens then is that the guy who's the stranger kind of staying in this house sends his concubine, his mistress, out the door, pushes her out the door. She gets gang raped all night until she's killed. She dies on the threshold of the door. The next morning, the guy picks her up, her dead body, puts her over his donkey and and takes off. Eventually, he cuts her into 12 pieces and sends each of the pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 parts of the people of Israel. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. And it's a story that provokes this question. It's in chapter thirty. Of, Sorry, verse 30 of chapter 19 in Judges. It says this, all who saw it. In other words, all who saw this poor woman and the pieces of her body cut up said, such a thing has never happened or has been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. You see, the book of Judges says this should absolutely disgust you. I mean, you know, I saw all the people tweeting and posting on Facebook about Miley Cyrus. That was disgusting, right? And people have all kinds of things. And, you know, I I think it's pretty fascinating that that sort of drowned out, you know, whatever happened in Syria with the gassing, right? Uh, I think about that because I live next door to Kurdish folks who had to come to this country uh, because of the gassing and the oppression of the Kurdish people under Saddam. And I think about this, and I think, gosh, you know, okay, I guess that that was crazy, and my kids saw part of it until we made him turn around, right? But here's, here's what's going on. Look, sometimes, sometimes we've got to get our, our sort of priority straight. This, this is unbelievable. This is disgusting. This should, this story in Judges should prompt you to go, oh my gosh, can there be any hope if God's people had gotten to the point where this is the kind of crazy stuff going on? I say sometimes, it's amazing that the Bible goes on after Genesis chapter 3. After sin comes into the world, it's, it's amazing that there is a Genesis chapter 4. That God doesn't just wipe his hands of us and say, okay, I gave him a good shot. I told him what to do. I put him in this beautiful place. And they really messed it up. But the Bible doesn't just go on Genesis 4. It goes on chapter 5, 6, 7, on and on and on. It even goes on after this story about the concubine who gets cut into pieces. Still, God has not given up on his people. The story doesn't end there. God is not done. And that's when we come to 1 Samuel chapter 8. Read it with me, if you would. I mean, don't read it, follow along as I read. When Samuel, so Samuel is a guy who is the last of the judges and the first of the prophets. He's kind of this transitional figure. Again, he's a one of these people that God has given graciously to his people to help them. But now Samuel himself is becoming old, and his kids are a mess. So it says, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways but turned aside after gain. That means they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, Samuel. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them. And show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So then basically Samuel gives like eight verses of warning them. Look, you want a king? This is what the king's going to be like. Eventually he's going to take all of your possessions, all your goods, and he's going to enslave you. We pick up down here at verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Even after all those warnings. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And When Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And then, chapter 9, we'll read just the first couple of verses. There was a man of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechareth, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Pray with me, and then we're going to dig into this passage. Lord, we do thank you for your holy and errant word. We pray, Lord, that as we look at this, Lord, that we will see not only our own hearts, but we will see your heart. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, we have this, this story, right? Israel demands a king. And in some ways, it may seem reasonable. Like they say, Samuel, you're old. You're going to die soon. It seems that the, the succession plan is for your sons to take over. They're a disaster. They don't walk in your ways. We need another plan. And so they go to him and they say, give us a king like all the other nations. Israel demands a king. But this story doesn't just reveal Israel, what I love about this story is the way God responds to this demand and what it reveals about him. Because honestly, it's one thing to see in the Bible how screwed up we are, and, and there's lots of stuff to point that out. There's lots of places where we find ourselves very much like the people in the Bible, struggling with the same kind of fears and the same kind of selfishness, the same kind of brokenness. But it's a, what really changes us is to see how God responds. To that situation. So I want to make sure we see both of those things here tonight. Now, the demand for a king is very revealing of Israel's heart. Basically, the way you need to think of this is they want to fire God. They want to fire God. And this is not a new thing for them. You know, even when Moses was doing, you know, these miraculous things to break To break the oppression of Egypt and to get Israel out of the slavery to Egypt, even then, the people were saying, Moses, stop. You're making it worse. And as soon as God had delivered them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, do you remember the first thing that they do? They turn to Moses and they say, Has God brought us out here to die? Where's the food? Where's the water? And it goes on and on and on again. Forty years, they wander around in the desert, mostly complaining about God. Even while he's leading them in miraculous ways and caring for them. Even when he gives them manna from heaven and quail and all these things, these provisions, they still are never satisfied. He gives them meat and they say, we're sick of it. Right? On and on and on. And here, you really get to a climax because God says, look, Samuel. See, here's the fascinating thing. Samuel gets mad. But God says, Samuel, this isn't about you. This isn't about you. This is about me. They've rejected me as their king. They've looked at me, their king, and said, you're doing a lousy job, God. And and, and I want to fire you. Now, here's what I want you to understand. Some of you tonight are maybe at that same place. You look back over your life and you think about God and trying to pursue him and be in a relationship with him, which might be new to some of you, but for a lot of you, I know you've been sort of go into Christian stuff and been around Christian stuff a long time. And for a lot of people, when they get off to college, it's the first time where they start to kind of get some critical distance from sort of the situation in which they grew up. And they begin to go, you know, man, man. If God had to apply for the, God, the job of God, I don't think I would give him the job. As a matter of fact, I would even go beyond that. I'm ready to fire him because he keeps failing over and over and over again. And I don't mean to make light of that. For some of you, there are stories here that would just kill us to hear them. That would just break our hearts to hear the way brokenness and sin has happened to you. So I don't mean to make light of that at all. And I will tell you this. I've been working with college students here at Belmont now 19 years. If you're not at a place tonight where you feel like if, if, if all things were equal, you would fire God for doing such a lousy job running the world, most of you at some point in the next four years will get to that point if you're honest with yourself. And it may not be about your own story. It may be about looking at the problems of the world. It may be looking or getting to know other people that you know and care for and knowing things that have happened to them. But for most people I know, they get to a point at some point where they really feel like God is doing a lousy job and needs to be fired. That's where they are. And I would just encourage you at some point to ask yourself this question. What could God do that would make you want to fire him? What could God do that would make him want to fire him? See, I think for so many people, you know, this is the dilemma, right, of of like youth leaders and, and churches, is they try to kind of soft sell or make sound more appealing Christianity. And so they often sort of, whether they mean to or not, give the impression that God really is out to serve you and give you the kind of life you want. And if somebody's taught you that, either explicitly or implicitly, I'm profoundly sorry. Because the Bible nowhere says that God is a means to an end for you to have the kind of life that you want. I think so deeply lodged in our heart is this idea that everything needs to be evaluated in terms of whether or not it will get me to where I want to go. So, Israel wants a king, demanding a king, because God has failed them. He hasn't provided well for them. There's Canaanites still all over the place. They're not fully settled in the promised land. The one who's been helping take care of them, Samuel, is getting old, and his kids are a mess. What's fascinating, though, about this story is that way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, which was written generations before this passage, God laid out what kind of king he was going to give to his people. So here's the interesting thing. Here in in, uh, 1 Samuel 8, God's people demand a king, and it's a bad thing. And yet when you look in Deuteronomy 17, they're laid down sort of what kind of king, what kind of king should the king of Israel be? So obviously, God had intended to give them a king. But here's the key. He did not intend to give them a king like all the other kings that the nations had. That's the key. God wanted to give them a king. God was committed to giving them a king. But not the kind of king that they wanted. And not the kind of king that all these other nations have. If you read Deuteronomy 17, what's stressed there is that when the time was right, God is going to choose a king for them. And the kind of king that God would give them would not be somebody who took advantage of his power and his privilege to build for himself powerful armies and a huge harem and fabulous wealth. That's what the kings of the ancient world were like. Their word was law. They did what they wanted. And God said, that's not the kind of king that I'm going to give you. That's not the kind of king that you were made for. The kind of king God was committed to give them is the one who would not consider equality with God something to be held on to. That's the way Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus came. The king of kings came, and he, even though he was God in the flesh, did not consider holding on to that status, grabbing hold of it. He didn't hold on to it. He set it aside and suffered unto death on a cross. That's the kind of king that God has for his people. The kind of king who would lay down his life for his friends. His friends who abandoned him in the most serious, intense trial that he would ever undergo. Listen, you were made for a king. You and I were made for a king. That's why our hearts resonate with all these stories. You know that, that thing that, um, that Sally Lloyd-Jones in that introduction talks about? Sort of these, all these stories of kings and princes and and, and dragons and all that kind of stuff. You know, C.S. Lewis and J.. And J. Tolkien had this fascinating conversation one time where um, Lewis sort of kind of sort of chimed in sort of an obnoxious comment when Tolkien was talking one time about stories and about myths. And, and, and C.S. Lewis made a little crack, and, and Tolkien told him aside, and they basically spent the entire night talking about this idea that beneath every story is this true story that the Bible speaks of. That you were made for a king who is committed to coming back and rescuing his broken world and marrying himself to his people. That underneath every story that your heart resonates and hopes could be true is a true story. And it's really what led C.S. Lewis to come to faith. Begin to understand that. That's what I'm trying to explain to you. The way Tolkien puts it so beautifully in the Lord of the Rings is he said that we were made for a king who bears the sword that was broken but has now been reforged. So he's the one who will put to death death itself. He's the one who will put all things right. But he also is the one who is known by having the healing hands. That's the kind of king you were made for. One who will vanquish evil. Who won't just say, there, there, but will say, sit. All of my enemies will be as a footstool for me. And I will make all things right and all things new. The king who will wipe away your tears and store them up. Whose hands bring real healing. That's the king we were made for. Israel wants a king but they don't want that kind of king. They want a king who will be like the other nations and who will fight their battles for him. And again, it's somewhat natural that they would want a king. Canaan is a, is a scary place. The, the Canaanites regularly practice child sacrifice. They sacrifice their own children to their gods. They do it all the time. Not to even mention what they do to the people that they enslave. Right? It is an actually difficult situation that Israel finds itself in, but what you've got to see in this passage is their demand for a king is a tragic turning back from God's purposes for Israel and the world. You see, here's the, here's the irony. Israel wants a king to be like the other nations, but God never wanted them to be like the other nations. Do you understand that? God rescued them from Egypt to demonstrate that there was another way to live, to demonstrate that having the security of the God of the universe say to them, I will be your God, you will be my people. God wanted to demonstrate to the watching world that having that kind of secure love changes everything. And so he called them to be holy. Now that's sort of a religious word. What does it mean? Here's the great way to think of it. Ralph Davis Talks about this in his book on First uh, Samuel. He says, holiness is being different for God's sake. Holiness is being different for God's sake. And that's why God rescued them. So that they would be different for his sake. So that they could demonstrate to the watching world that having the love of the covenant God in your life changes everything. And they're ready to throw all that away. God's purpose was not just to rescue Israel, but for Israel to be a beacon to show and draw people to worship the true God. And now they're ready to throw all that away. Give us a king like every other nation. But here's what's really crazy in this story. How does God respond? How does God respond to a people that are ready to throw away his whole purpose and plan? ready to spit in the face of the one who has rescued them. You see what he says? It's mind-blowing. He says to Samuel, give them a king. Give them a king. They've rejected me as their king. Give them a king. Do you understand what that means? What that means is the God of the Bible is long-suffering. In his grace. The God of the Bible is long-suffering in his grace. When God's people say to him, we're ready to fire you. We don't like the job you're doing. We want somebody else to be our God. He says, okay, it breaks my heart. But okay. Is that what you think of when you think of God? Or do you think of God as somebody that just flies off the handle whenever you do something wrong? This is an unbelievable story when you understand the pain in God's heart when he says, they've rejected me as their king. And then he sort of pulls all that inside and says, give them a king. Warn them about how crazy this is, how how it's going to ruin their lives, but give them a king. God is long-suffering. He's long-suffering. What are we to learn from this? You were made for a king. One thing that means is authority will always be an issue that you have to deal with. You were made for a king, therefore, authority is always an issue you have to deal with. What has authority in your life? Something does. You can't escape it, it's built into your very nature. Jesus said clearly that we can't serve two masters. Something is functioning as an authority for you and for me. And I will tell you, God is gracious to sometimes bring us into situations that will reveal us to us. Oh, God is revealing his long suffering here. But first he's revealing to these people You don't want me as king. You would fire me if you could. And given the opportunity, they do. They fire God. They say, we don't want you. We want a different king. As you begin your life at Belmont, you must think about this issue. What has authority in your life? What has authority in life? Why are you here is another way to get at that. What are you here for? There is some answer that you have to that question, whether you've teased it out very well or not. It's lurking in your heart. You may not discover it until you reach a point of frustration or a point of loneliness, but God, in His grace, I suspect, will eventually reveal some kind of answer to that question. And, and I guarantee you that if you don't have a big enough answer to why am I here and what am I here to do, all All the smaller answers are ultimately dehumanizing. All the smaller answers, I'm here to 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 sort of get my make my way in the world and get a good job, ultimately dehumanizing. It's ultimately dehumanizing. I'm not saying that you shouldn't study hard and develop your gifts, but if your purpose is to make money or to find a a a wife or whatever, those are all those purposes are too small and they'll ultimately be dehumanizing. Uh, the other day, I was, I was going through the line at the Kroger down on 8th Avenue there, the Ghetto Kroger, is that what you guys call it? And um, I don't know, I was just kind of offended by this little sign. I don't think they meant anything by it, but it said, you know, looking for smiling faces, which was like their little ad, I guess, to hire people. And I thought, that's all they want? Sm- just be a smiling face. That's the only thing that matters to you, to us, is your smiling face. Ugh, Right? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you didn't read it that way, but it's dehumanizing to me. We just want you for what you can do for us. And let me tell you, you know that that's the way the world works. You, all, you may not want to admit it, but you know that the way the world basically works is we want you for what you can do for us. That's not the way God works. Last point. So then we get this guy, Saul. Saul. Now, you got to understand that in the Bible, physical descriptions of people are extraordinarily rare they're extraordinarily rare so if the bible describes somebody physically there's a reason for it how is this guy described twice he's described as being unbelievably handsome and then what's the kicker he's a head taller than everybody else Do you understand if you want a king to represent you and fight your battles you want a guy like saul God gives them the kind of king they want. And it actually starts out pretty well. We're not going to look at this, but in chapter 11 and chapter 12, he wins some really impressive battles. Here's the fascinating thing. Even though God's people have rejected God as their king, he gives them a king and actually allows this king to deliver them from some of their enemies. But it doesn't last. Eventually, Saul turns away from the word of the Lord. Ultimately, his own authority, the the thing that's most important to him is not scrupulous obedience to the Lord in his ways, but basically covering his own butt. And everything becomes disastrous, and he is rejected as king. Because he fails to honor the word of God above all things. Now, you might look at that and say, gosh, God is really picky, you know, the guy was doing his best. It's hard to be the king. It's hard to know exactly what to do. But what you need to see in this, God is setting us up at this point in the story to say, the only king, the only king that can really be the king who can, who can bear the sword and bring the healing is the one whose ultimate desire and will is God's word and God's kingdom. We need a king who desires God's word and God's kingdom more than his own life. And that's what we have in Jesus. It's what we have. Jesus is the one who obeyed every word from God. Do you remember he says at one point, it's my meat and drink to do the will of my father. That's the kind of king we need. And We might marvel at the long suffering of God here in 1 Samuel. The long suffering of God who when his people say to him, I don't want you as king anymore. We want to fire you. He says to Samuel, give them a king. With his heart breaking from his people's rejection, still he doesn't give up on them. But let me tell you, don't stop there. Because if you want to understand the long-suffering of God in the most powerful way possible, you have to look past 1 Samuel 8 and look to Jesus on a cross. Right? Look at Jesus. As he hangs on a cross, he pleads with God, Father, don't hold this sin against them. They don't know what they're doing. Can your mind even begin to get around that? the people that are torturing Jesus, he prays that God would forgive them. It's one thing for God to not give up on his people when they fire him. It's a whole other thing for God to love his people when they torture him, when they jeer and taunt him as he groans and dies. You want to talk about the long suffering of God? Let me tell you, here's the good news tonight. Every one of us here, at times, uses God as a means to an end. Every one of us, every one of us, wants God more than we realize for what he can give us than for who he is. But don't despair, because God is long-suffering beyond what you can imagine. He didn't just continue to love his people after they fired him. He continued to love his people as they were torturing him. Right? It's one thing to fire God because he isn't doing what you want. It's another thing to put him on a cross. Surely he meant what he said when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And at the cross, he put an exclamation point on it. Praise God. Let's pray.